Ben Shapiro recently debated Cenk Uger of the Young Turks at Politicon, and in the process, he made a series of sloppy arguments and false claims that I'm going to break down and refute in this video. Let's jump right into it. The truth about healthcare is this. There are three qualities of healthcare that you can have. You can have affordability, you can have universality, uh, or you can have quality. And you can have two of those three things, but not all three. This is actually nonsense. On the surface, this might seem like a neat little set of guidelines to help us determine what the best approach to healthcare is, but this is just an assertion. An assertion that you'll discover is untrue if you look at the available evidence. Ben frames this debate in a way that we can describe as a false trichotomy. The implication is that moving the United States in the direction of a taxpayer-funded universal healthcare system would either cause prices to skyrocket or quality to plummet. Supporters of such a system are supposed to hear this and think, well, shit, I support universal healthcare, but do I want it to be affordable and low quality or unrealistically expensive and high quality? The reality of the situation is that you can have all three things, universality, affordability, and quality. In fact, the healthcare systems of several other nations offer healthcare of a higher quality that is universal and significantly cheaper than the healthcare provided in the United States. A 2014 Commonwealth Fund study ranked the United States healthcare system as dead last overall in a comparison of 11 nations. The quality of care was ranked 5th, access was ranked 9th, and efficiency, equity, and healthy lives were all ranked 11th. Per capita healthcare spending is dramatically the highest in the United States, at $8,508. Compare that to the second highest nation, Norway, at $5,669, and the lowest nation, New Zealand, at $3,182. OECD data from 2013, which compares all 35 OECD nations, also shows that the United States spends the highest amount on healthcare, by a long shot, as a percentage of GDP. 16.4% compared to the OECD average of 8.9%, with the second highest percentage being only 11.1%. All of these countries in the Commonwealth Fund study, except the United States, have universal healthcare systems. All of them are cheaper on a per capita basis, and four of them surpass the United States in the overall quality of care. The United Kingdom, Austria, Switzerland, and New Zealand, with the Netherlands being tied with the United States for fifth place. One thing that I like about this particular Commonwealth Fund study is that it doesn't just cherry-pick isolated bits of evidence that could be used to support a particular position. For example, somebody could point out that the timeliness of care received in Norway is less than ideal, and therefore they might conclude that we should dismiss the healthcare system of Norway altogether because it has this singular defect. Now, it's clear from this data that no nation's healthcare systems are perfect. Every one of them has its defects, and each nation should strive to improve. But it's clear from the data that the United States healthcare system is the most defective overall. With all of this in mind, let's return to Ben Shapiro's claim. The truth about healthcare is this. There are three qualities of healthcare that you can have. You can have affordability, you can have universality, uh, or you can have quality. And you can have two of those three things, but not all three. This is plainly untrue as several nations do, in fact, possess all three qualities. 
And when you compare the United States to countries which offer universal health care, you find that all of them surpass the United States in affordability, and several of them also surpass it in quality. What they actually need to do is relieve the regulatory burden that is driving up the cost of health care. As we can see, Ben Shapiro's opening arguments quickly turned into a parade of unjustified, stale, right-wing talking points. Oh, so it's the regulatory burden that's driving up the cost of health care? What an absurd misunderstanding and oversimplification this is. We need to be precise when we talk about these things, because different regulations will have different effects. For example, imagine a regulation that had the net effect of requiring doctors to spend two hours filling out paperwork before they can perform a harmless, routine test. A needless regulation like this probably would have the effect of decreasing the quality and efficiency of our healthcare system, while increasing the costs. But on the other hand, imagine a regulation that said something like, the cost of prescription drugs will be arrived at through negotiations between the government and the pharmaceutical industry, rather than simply allowing this industry to price them as high as they want to. A regulation like this would decrease the cost of prescription drugs, and would thus lower healthcare costs. So the point is, simply accusing regulation of driving up the cost of healthcare is thoughtless and lazy, because regulations are not intrinsically cost-increasing. What effect regulations will have depends entirely upon the content and goals of these regulations. Thus, they need to be evaluated on a case-by-case -case basis, and not denounced wholesale in such an irrational manner. And this is a principle that applies not just to healthcare, but to regulations generally. And even if certain regulations do drive up the cost of something, this is not the end of the analysis. More important to ask is, what is the ultimate effect of this regulation? Safety regulations on cars might make them more expensive, but how many thousands of lives do they save each year? Regulations on meat factories might make your cheeseburgers a little bit more expensive, but they also make your cheeseburgers much less likely to infect you with some horrific, deadly illness. So, you might ask, if not over-regulation, then what is the explanation for why healthcare in America is so expensive and continues to become even more costly? Well, there isn't just a one-word answer to this. A lot of different factors play a role. For starters, as Maggie Mayhar writes in the Institute for New Economic Thinking, quote, What makes American healthcare unique, and uniquely expensive, is that the U.S. is the only country in the developed world that has chosen to turn medicine into a for-profit enterprise, end quote. Our for-profit system directs a lot of healthcare industry money towards things other than actual healthcare, including marketing, advertising, lobbying, etc. The Huffington Post compared the efficiency of privatized, profit-driven healthcare against taxpayer-funded healthcare in an article entitled, Insurance Companies Just Accidentally Made the Case for Medicare for All. As they write, quote, America's health insurance plans, the trade group for commercial health insurance companies, published an infographic this month breaking down how the industry spends every dollar it receives in premiums. The graphic shows that about 80% of every premium dollar goes towards medical expenses, prescription drugs, doctor visits, hospitalization, and other services. Approximately 18% goes to administrative costs, and some 3% is profit. By contrast, Medicare, the largest U.S. public insurer, paid just 1.5% of its budget to administer traditional insurance plans for seniors and workers with severe disabilities in 2015, according to official data. 
The rest of Medicare's budget went to paying doctors, hospital, drug companies, and other healthcare providers. When you account for administrative costs of Medicare's private plans, which cover some one-third of Medicare beneficiaries, Medicare's overhead approaches 6.4% of its budget. The comparison shows that expanding Medicare to cover the entire population, or adopting a single-payer health insurance system, would significantly reduce health care costs by eliminating a whole lot of expenses that aren't related to medical care. That's in part because Medicare does not have to advertise its services, make a profit for investors, or reward its executives with multi-million dollar compensation packages, as private insurers do, end quote. And as we can see here, in data provided by the Center for Responsive Politics, the pharmaceutical and health product industry in recent years has spent well over $200 million annually lobbying our governments, while the insurance industry has spent about $130 million annually doing the same thing. Spending this kind of money ensures that many politicians won't support legislation that would chip away at the profits of these industries, and radically alter our system in a way that would ultimately reduce healthcare costs. Thus, legislation that would allow the government to negotiate with the pharmaceutical industry to determine the price of drugs, for example, gets blocked, because this very industry spends money to corrupt politicians who then block any efforts to move in this direction. So instead of the government regulating the industry, in America, the industry regulates the government. This is in stark contrast to how things work in the rest of the developed world. For example, as Maggie Mayhar writes, quote, In Western Europe, the government regulates healthcare, deciding how much doctors, drug makers, hospitals, and insurers can charge. End quote. But in America, our government specifically set up roadblocks to prevent any such interference in the pricing of drugs. As the Kaiser Family Foundation writes, quote, Notably, Congress added language to the Medicare Modernization Act of 2003, known as the Non-Interference Clause, which stipulates that the HHS Secretary may not interfere with the negotiations between drug manufacturers and pharmacies and PDP sponsors, and may not require a particular formulary or institute a price structure for the reimbursement of covered Part D drugs. In effect, this provision means that the government can have no role in negotiating or setting drug prices in Medicare Part D. This is in stark contrast to how drug prices are determined in some other federal programs. For example, the statutory requirement for mandatory drug price rebates in Medicaid, and a requirement that drug manufacturers charge the Department of Veterans Affairs no more than the lowest price paid by any private sector purchaser." End quote. So when it's completely up to the pharmaceutical industry to decide what to charge for certain drugs, they can just jack the prices up and profit enormously. This is a big part of why we often see the United States charging far more than other nations do for its prescription drugs. Bloomberg compared the prices of top-selling drugs in the United States to other countries and found that we were paying vastly more than other nations do. As they write, quote, Prices for brand-name drugs are typically higher in the U.S. than other developed countries. The drug industry has argued it's misleading to focus on U.S. list prices that exclude discounts struck behind closed doors with insurers. A Bloomberg News analysis finds that, even after these discounts, prices are higher in the U.S. than abroad. Seven of eight top-selling drugs examined still cost more in the U.S. than most other countries. End quote. So for Crestor, a cholesterol-lowering pill, we pay well over twice as much as other nations do. 
Ferlantis, long-acting insulin. We pay the most. Same goes for Advair, an asthma medication, and Genuvia, a diabetes medication. For Savaldia, a hepatitis C medication, we pay about the same as the rest of the world after the discounts are applied, although in certain countries, the price is far lower than this. For Humira, a rheumatoid arthritis drug, Herceptin, a breast cancer treatment, and Gleevec, a leukemia medication, we pay the most by a long shot. Take a minute to disconnect yourself from the purely economic question and just think about how perverse this is. These aren't needless items like flat-screen TVs or fancy sports cars that people are overpaying for in the United States. These are necessary, life-improving, and sometimes life-saving medications that these profit-driven companies jack the prices up on just to make more money. We hear a lot of talk about American exceptionalism, and here is a clear example of how Americans get exceptionally screwed over by the corporate sector. And finally... Much of why our healthcare spending is so high compared to the rest of the world can be encapsulated in one word, waste. As a 2007 Dartmouth Medicine publication writes, quote, With its decades of data, Dartmouth has exposed the incredible waste in the U.S. healthcare system. Sizing up the evidence, Wenberg estimates that up to one-third of the over $2 trillion that we now spend annually on healthcare is squandered on unnecessary hospitalizations unneeded and often redundant tests, unproven treatments, overpriced cutting-edge drugs, devices no better than the less expensive products they replaced, and end-of-life care that brings neither comfort nor cure. As Dartmouth's 2006 paper, The Care of Patients with Severe Chronic Illnesses, points out, if this waste were eliminated, the Medicare system could reduce spending by at least 30% while improving the medical care of the most severely ill Americans, end quote. As we can see, many factors contribute to the high cost of healthcare in the United States, and it is laughably inadequate to simply decry over-regulation, as Ben Shapiro did. In fact, a lack of regulation in certain areas, such as drug pricing and campaign contributions to politicians, partly explains why our healthcare is so expensive in this country. But what we can't do is suggest as the Bernie Sanders left does, that health care is an inalienable right, and therefore you can put a gun to my wife's head, she's a doctor, and you can force her to provide care at any cost you want to pay. Really? We're putting a gun to your wife's head? Isn't this the same guy who's constantly stressing the importance of facts over feelings? Yet here he is, making this inane and emotional argument. What a dramatic, hyperbolic crybaby. Ben has his priorities completely backwards here. Instead of being upset at the fact that the healthcare industry can charge whatever obscenely high prices it wants to in matters of health, personal well-being, and even life and death, he's instead outraged that people have the audacity to call for the government to play a role in bringing these prices down from the stratospheric heights that they're at when compared with the rest of the world. Tear-filled as your eyes might be as you contemplate this right-wing fetish of men with guns oppressing the humble yeoman as he toils under the government lash, you do not have the moral high ground here, Ben. Allowing the healthcare industry to charge whatever absurdly high prices it wants to when people need these medications and treatments to improve or even save their lives simply is not the ethically superior position. 
And it's laughable that he frames this issue as one of the modest, meek, individual doctor languishing under the tyranny of governments, while he completely leaves out of this picture the healthcare executives in their penthouses and private jets, laughing all the way to the bank, while reaping stupendous profits at the expense of the vast majority in this country. What a distorted image of reality that this guy is presenting. And it's not just the Bernie Sanders left in America that says the government should have a role in determining the pricing of healthcare. As I quoted earlier, quote, In Western Europe, the government regulates healthcare, deciding how much doctors, drug makers, hospitals, and insurers can charge, end quote. So this isn't just some kind of dystopian fantasy of sinister progressives in America. This is a very real system that's operational in many countries around the world. And contrary to the dark Orwellian picture painted by Ben Shapiro, there is no mass movement of doctors in these countries taking to the streets to protest the government depression in healthcare. If you look at the polling data that's been gathered on primary care physicians in these countries, you'll find that the vast majority of them are satisfied with both their practice and the pay they receive. As Managed Care Magazine wrote in 2016, quote, A survey published in Health Affairs looked at primary care physicians in 10 countries, Germany, the Netherlands, Norway, Australia, New Zealand, Switzerland, the United Kingdom, the United States, Canada, and Sweden. The study states that while the vast majority of primary care doctors across countries are satisfied with their practice and income, the themes of frustration with administrative burden and insurance hassle resonate across many of the countries. This is particularly true among those with multi-payer private insurance systems, Germany, the Netherlands, Switzerland, and the United States, end quote. So it turns out that the more frustrated doctors are actually the ones in countries where the private sector has a large role in healthcare, like the United States. Thus, overall, Ben Shapiro is completely talking out of his ass here. And he should probably get that checked out, although not in America, because otherwise he'll pay an arm and a leg, and descend into bankruptcy, of course. The problem with Medicare for all is that when people say that it's affordable, this isn't affordable to the person who has the Medicare, it is not affordable to the country. In fact, it is so unaffordable to the country that the state of California was a nut-job leftist state, just refused to even pass Medicare for All because it would have immediately doubled the debt. This is another steaming pile of nonsense. How is it that Medicare for All is unaffordable if the many other countries that have tax-financed healthcare systems, similar to Medicare, have managed to make it work and make it affordable? Having such a healthcare system is in fact much more affordable than our current healthcare system. Once again, just compare the amount that we spend on healthcare in the United States to any other country, and you see that Ben Shapiro's affordability argument evaporates before your eyes. It's easy to say, oh my goodness, tax-funded healthcare would cost a lot of money. Look at the big number that it would cost us. But in order to provide any kind of rational, useful, informative analysis, you need to actually compare the amount that is spent per capita in our country under our current system versus other countries that have tax-based healthcare systems. People would ultimately be spending less money in America on healthcare if we had a tax-funded healthcare system. Instead of paying out-of-pocket to profit-driven insurance and pharmaceutical companies, we would instead pay via our taxes into a much more efficient system. So while taxes might increase, the net amount that we spend per capita on healthcare would decrease. You can see this if you compare America to other countries, and you can see this if you compare Medicare to private insurance companies. 
So when people talk about how taxpayer-funded healthcare would increase the amount of revenue that the government needs to generate, while this is true, the other side of this equation, commonly overlooked, is that people would have the excess money to fund this government program because they would no longer be spending money on healthcare individually as they currently do. Saying that we can't afford a taxpayer-funded healthcare system is a nonsensical statement, because it is tantamount to saying we can't afford to spend less money than we're currently spending. Ben Shapiro is ultimately arguing that making healthcare more affordable would make healthcare unaffordable. This is a complete absurdity. And regarding the specific example of California, a series of explanations were provided by the California legislature for why they didn't pass the bill. As New Republic writes, quote, In a statement, Speaker of California's Assembly Anthony Rendon said the bill was woefully incomplete because it did not address serious issues such as financing, delivery of care, cost controls, or the realities of needed action by the Trump administration and voters to make SB 562 a genuine piece of legislation, end quote. But the following information, provided by the International Business Times, is worth sharing. Quote, the groups opposing the single-payer measure in California have delivered more than $1.5 million to Democratic Assembly members since the 2012 election cycle. In all, the 55 Democratic members of the 80-seat Assembly have received more than $2.7 million from donors in the pharmaceutical and health insurance industries in just the last three election cycles. Complicating matters for this year's single-payer bill was the fact that the pharmaceutical industry had just spent more than $100 million to defeat a 2016 ballot measure in California aimed at lowering drug prices, end quote. I think it's fair to say that this infusion of corporate cash had something to do with the fate of that legislation. The idea that all of these socialized medicine countries have it so much better than we do, particularly in terms of cancer care, is a joke. We are still number one in terms of five-year cancer survival rate here in the United States. This is a textbook example of cherry-picking one particular data point that supports your perspective, as opposed to looking at the totality of the evidence. It is virtually a statistical certainty that every country in the world, at least every developed country, has at least one area where they're superior to all other countries in terms of healthcare. Just as a matter of probability, this is to be expected. So seizing upon one data point like this is far from an indication of the overall quality of our healthcare system compared to the rest of the world. That Commonwealth Fund study cited earlier ranks the quality of healthcare in the United States as fifth out of the 11. But the way that they went about ranking this wasn't by cherry-picking bits and pieces of evidence in a self-serving, ideologically-driven manner, like Ben Shapiro was doing here. They looked at the quality overall, not just in one particular niche of healthcare. And one of the things that's happened with Obamacare is that you've gotten closer to universality, but you haven't gotten any closer to either affordability or quality. And the Republican Party seems to be falling into the trap of basically just copying what the Democrats do except being worse at it. It is true that Obamacare has gotten us closer to universality, as more people have health care as a result of it. But Obamacare is not the only plausible way to get us to universality. Even if we granted, for the sake of arguments, that Obamacare was a disaster, this wouldn't mean that universal health care generally is a disaster. Even if Obamacare didn't increase affordability or quality, other systems that provide universal health care could. And, in fact, as the data shows, this is exactly the case.
Now, I don't view Obamacare as the most brilliant piece of legislation ever crafted, but just as a matter of fact, I would argue that it does contain some provisions that have increased both the quality and affordability of our healthcare. Regarding quality, we read the following on Wikipedia. Obamacare includes incentives to reduce hospital infections. The Hospital Readmissions Reduction Program was established as an addition to the Social Security Act in an effort to reduce hospital readmissions. This program penalizes hospitals with higher than expected readmission rates by decreasing their Medicare reimbursement rate. End quote. So what have been the results of this program? Wasfi et al. write the following in a 2017 study. After controlling for pre-law trends, an additional 67.6, 74.8, 85.4, and 95.1 readmissions per 10,000 discharges were found to have been averted per year in the highest, average, low, and lowest performance groups, respectively, after the passage of the law. End quote. So, in other words, as intended, there has been a tangible, detectable reduction in hospital readmission rates since the passage of Obamacare. It may not be the most earth-shattering improvement in healthcare quality that you can conceive of, but it is something. How about affordability? Well, note that the previous provision goes hand-in-hand -hand with affordability, because if people are being readmitted to the hospital less, they're going to be spending less on healthcare. Aside from that, Obamacare contains several provisions that make healthcare more affordable, for low-income Americans specifically. First and foremost are the subsidies that it provides. As Wikipedia writes, quote, Households with incomes between 100 and 400 percent of the federal poverty level are eligible to receive federal subsidies for policies purchased via an exchange. Subsidies are provided as an advanceable, refundable tax credit. Additionally, small businesses are eligible for a tax credit provided that they enroll in the shop marketplace. End quote. ZaneBenefits.com features the following chart in an article entitled Obamacare Tax Credits and Subsidies. As we can see, under Obamacare, healthcare premiums are capped at a certain percentage of a person's income based upon how their income compares to the federal poverty level. For example, if you make 200% of the federal poverty level, your health insurance premiums are capped at 6.34% of your income, which works out to be about $123 per month. This Obamacare provision provides real savings to people. The Kaiser Family Foundation provides the following chart on their website. As we can see, the monthly premium cost of a silver healthcare plan for a 40-year-old non-smoker making $30,000 per year would be, in 2017, $492 in Birmingham, Alabama, if there were no such tax credits. But with the tax credit, this person instead ends up paying only $207. Look at Anchorage, Alaska. $904 per month? I think I'd rather just die of cancer. Thanks to the Obamacare subsidies, however, the monthly premium is only $163, so people in Anchorage have the luxury of contemplating suicide for reasons other than healthcare premiums. Another provision of Obamacare is the Medicaid expansion. As Wikipedia writes, quote, Obamacare revised and expanded Medicaid eligibility starting in 2014. 
under the law as written, states that wish to participate in the Medicaid program are required to allow people with income up to 133% of the poverty line to qualify for coverage, including adults without disabilities or dependent children, end quote. Despite the fact that, quote, the Supreme Court ruled in NFIB v. Sibelius that this provision of the ACA was coercive and that the federal government must allow states to continue at pre-ACA levels of funding and eligibility if they chose, as of December 2016, there were 32 states, including Washington, D.C., that had adopted the Medicaid expansion, end quote. And lastly, under Obamacare, quote, Medicare Part D participants received a 50% discount on brand name drugs purchased after exhausting their initial coverage and before reaching the catastrophic coverage threshold. The United States Department of Health and Human Services began mailing rebate checks in 2010. By the year 2020, the donut hole will be completely phased out. End quote. And in case you're unaware or in need of a refresher, as Wikipedia writes, quote, the Medicare Part D coverage gap informally known as the Medicare Donut Hole, is a period of consumer payment for prescription medication costs which lies between the initial coverage limit and the catastrophic coverage threshold, when the consumer is a member of a Medicare Part D prescription drug program administered by the United States federal government. The gap is reached after shared insurer payments, consumer payments, for all covered prescription drugs reaches a government set amount, and is left only after the consumer has paid full, unshared costs of an additional amount for the same prescriptions. End quote. Now, somebody at this point might argue, but aha, if these cost-reducing measures are funded by the federal government, then these aren't real spending reductions, because instead of us paying directly for these things, we're just paying indirectly via our tax dollars. So ultimately, we're spending the same amount, and we've just created the illusion of savings by shifting the money around. Clever point. I would respond by pointing out that we have a progressive taxation system, and thus people on the lower ends of the economic spectrum wouldn't be funding these subsidies to the same degree that people on the higher end of the spectrum would. As Time writes in an article entitled, How is Obamacare Paid For? Quote, High-income taxpayers also help pay for Obamacare. The health law requires workers to pay a tax equal to 0.9% of their wages, over $200,000 if single, or $250,000 if married, filing jointly, to finance Medicare's hospital insurance. It also imposes a 3.8% surtax on various forms of investment income for taxpayers whose modified adjusted gross income is over $200,000 if single, or $250,000 if married, filing jointly. These provisions will account for $346 billion in revenues by 2025, according to the CBO. End quote. I can only speak for myself, but I don't exactly lie awake at night weeping at the prospect that people living comfortable, luxurious lives, making six-figure incomes or above, will end up paying a bit more in taxes to provide the lower and middle class with some badly needed financial relief on healthcare. And if this does bother you, maybe you should get your priorities in order. What about the impact of Obamacare on healthcare costs generally? First, let's look at healthcare premiums, which are, quote, the amount you pay for your health insurance every month, end quote. As the Kaiser Family Foundation writes, quote, since 2011, average family premiums have increased 20%, more slowly than the previous five years, 31% increase from 2006 and 2011, and more slowly than the five years before that, 
63% from 2001 to 2006, end quote. And here we see this data represented graphically. So, while healthcare premium costs are still increasing, the growth rate of this increase has been declining. Also, I'm not sure whether this data factors in the subsidies that some people receive to help them pay for healthcare. At the same time, however, deductibles have been increasing more sharply. And deductibles for you healthcare rookies are, quote, the amount you pay for covered healthcare services before your insurance plan starts to pay, end quote. So it appears that this reduction in the growth rate of healthcare premiums has been partially offset by the increase in deductibles that has been taking place at the same time. And the analysis is complicated even further than this. As Wikipedia writes, quote, While health insurance premium costs have moderated, some of this is because of insurance policies that have a higher deductible, co-payments, and out-of-pocket maximums that shift costs from insurers to patients. In addition, many employees are choosing to combine a health savings account with higher deductible plans, making the impact of the ACA difficult to determine precisely. End quote. We also need to be careful not to commit the post hoc ergo propter hoc fallacy, which translates from Latin to after this, therefore because of this. Just because something preceded an event doesn't necessarily mean that it's the cause of the event. If a person started uttering prayers when they got sick, and they also took medication, the fact that they prayed and then got better doesn't mean that the prayer is what caused their return to normal health. Similarly, just because the passage of Obamacare coincided with, for example, a reduction in the growth rates of healthcare premiums, doesn't necessarily mean that it's the cause of this reduction. Other factors might be at least partially responsible for these trends. With all of that said, I would argue that, at the very least, the subsidies, Medicaid expansion, and donut hole closure, implemented as a result of Obamacare, does make healthcare more affordable for the Americans who receive these benefits. And we should also distinguish between the quality of healthcare that we receive and the quality of the healthcare system. Making healthcare more affordable and more accessible does improve the quality of the healthcare system, even if the quality of healthcare remains the same. So to return to Ben Shapiro's claim, I would disagree on both points, that Obamacare has not increased the quality or affordability of our healthcare. And, once again, even if he was correct about this, Obamacare is not synonymous with universal healthcare. Other systems could, and do, reduce the cost and improve the quality of healthcare while also providing universality. The last thing he says here, in the context of discussing Obamacare, is that, quote, the Republican Party seems to be falling into the trap of basically just copying what the Democrats do, except being worse at it, end quote. This strikes me as completely backwards, because Obamacare, championed of course by Democrats, shares many key elements with healthcare legislation that was originally proposed by Republicans in 1993. As PolitiFact writes, quote, Republican Senator John Chafee of Rhode Island was the point man. The bill he introduced, Health Equity and Access Reform Today, had a list of 20 co-sponsors that was a who's who of Republican leadership. There was Minority Leader Bob Dole, Republican of Kansas, Senators Orrin Hatch, Republican of Utah, Charles Grassley, Republican of Iowa, Richard Lugar, Republican of Indiana, and many others. There also were two Democratic co-sponsors. Among other features, the Chafee Bill included an individual mandate, creation of purchasing pools, standardized benefits, 
vouchers for the poor to buy insurance, and a ban on denying coverage based on a pre-existing condition, end quote. The bill never passed, but nonetheless, Ben Shapiro seems to have it backwards here. This is actually an area in which Democrats are the ones falling into the trap of basically copying what the Republicans do, except they're better at it, because they actually got the legislation passed. And this is just part of a much broader trend of the mainstream political left in America, shifting towards the right over time on a variety of issues. After watching or listening to this, I hope it's clear to you that many of Ben Shapiro's arguments on healthcare simply don't stand up to scrutiny. If you actually investigate the claims that he makes, you'll find that many of them are just completely false. These arguments that he presented and that I've refuted here are a sampling of some of the standard, unjustified right-wing talking points that you hear on healthcare, so hopefully, moving forward, you'll be more equipped to debunk these arguments when you encounter them. Thank you all for listening. You can support my videos financially on Patreon, and you can also follow me on Twitter or Google+. That's all I've got for now, and until next time, take care.